Amen. Is that not a great comfort to be reminded that the word of the Lord endures forever? And, and that is the word under which we sit week in and week out, the, the word which has authority over our lives, the word which has authority over all creation. And so today we will come to Galatians chapter 6 as we consider God's word. We are entering into the last chapter of the epistle of Paul to the Galatians, and as we do, we will look at verses 1 through 5 today and consider the idea of Christ-honoring restoration, Christ-honoring restoration. Now, we have to go back a number of weeks to our last time in the book of Galatians, and you will remember, I hope, that we finished looking at that glorious portion of chapter 5 where we considered the Spirit-filled life. What does it mean to be God's people and to live a life that showcases that you are empowered by His Spirit? That section starting at verse 16 and going through the end of the, of the chapter is just full of encouragement and exhortation and teaching and instruction. You kind of climb a mountaintop in that passage and you get to the top of that mountain and you ask, where is Paul going to go next? Or better, you ask, where is the Spirit of God going to go next. And in the Lord's providence, I, I think it's interesting to say the least that the Spirit of God would have Paul write about relationships. Paul writes this mountaintop section of Galatians chapter 5 and we reach the pinnacle of that. And then Paul says, now I'm going to tell you how to live with one another. I'm going to talk about sin and restoring a sinning brother. In the Lord's wisdom, he knows that when the saints come together as a local church body, as we strive to walk in the Spirit, there will still be sin. We still must confront sin in one another, and we must restore those who are repentant. And so as we battle against sin, as we walk in the Lord's process of sanctification, there will certainly be situations where sin happens, and where you or where I have to confront and restore a fellow saint. What seems to present a challenge at times, and it's evidenced by the passage that we'll read in just a moment, is the challenge is not that we must confront sin, not that we must restore a sinning brother, but the challenge is how do we do it? What are the means? What are the motives? What are the marks of Christ-honoring restoration. Well, we have a very pointed section of Scripture in front of us to help us walk through that. So let's give our attention now to the reading of the Word of the Lord, and then let's ask His blessing on our time. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is holy, inspired Scripture. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, 
And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Lord, we do indeed ask this morning that you would add blessing to the reading and now over the next 45 minutes, the preaching and the instruction of your word. Lord, your word is spirit-inspired, and thereby it must be spirit-applied. We are but vessels and instruments in the hands of the Almighty. Lord, would you take your word and write it upon our hearts? Lord, such a passage before us in, in a way can seem didactic and, and almost just instructive and, and we can sometimes struggle to find exhortation. But Lord, would you remove every obstacle before us today? Lord, would you grind our pride to dust? Would you humble us before you to know that you are the holy God and we are but created beings who live in order to serve and please you. Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts, Lord, that are ready and eager to receive and respond to the truth. Lord, would your spirit open and illuminate our minds. Lord, would you take your word that is sharper than any two-edged sword and pierce us to the joint and to the marrow, pierce us to the heart. Lord, would you take such a passage of scripture as is before us and use it as a springboard as we begin a new year to help us to deepen our relationships with one another. Would you take this truth and cause us to see how short we can often fall in, in our own personal holiness and also in our relating to and investing in and discipling our brothers and sisters? Lord, help us to take your word and apply it. Help us to see the goodness and the glory of Christ in this text. Help us to see the goodness and the glory of Christ in all things. For we are bought and purchased and redeemed, not with, with that which is perishable, but with that which is imperishable, the precious blood of Christ. He is our head. He is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He is our Lord. And He is also our friend. Lord, may we see Christ today, and may we desire to glorify him in all that we do. I pray in his name. Amen. So considering these verses before us, we see that Paul wants the Galatians not only to understand the call to restore a brother, but to put these things into practice. It's one thing to have this head knowledge that we must confront sin and restore a sinning brother, but it's another thing to put it into practice. It's not easy to confront sin in someone you love. It's difficult. It can make your heart 
hurt. It can make your stomach churn. But this is a command of Scripture. And what we see from this text really is, and this becomes very clear as we work through this, is that the proper confrontation and restoration of a sinning saint begins in the heart of the one doing the restoring. Now, surely the Lord must work in that saint who has sinned. But if you are going to try to restore a brother or a sister, your heart must be prepared and your life must be in order. So Paul exhorts us today through his exhortation to the Galatians here to restore a sinning brother exactly as Christ has restored us. Exactly as Christ has restored us. Christ restores us with a spirit of gentleness. Christ restores us with his own holiness, with a pure heart, with great humility, with great patience, and with great instruction. The process of this restoration will be our focus today. We'll consider the charge of restoration. We will consider the spirit of restoration. And we will look at the self-examination that should permeate the process of restoration. So let's begin. Point number one, the charge of restoration. In the first part of verse one, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Stop right there. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, that word if is very important when we consider this overall process. This word should not be translated as when a brother or sister is caught in a trespass. Now, we know that we will all still sin while we're in the flesh. So in that sense, you could put the word when here. But remember, we are on the backside of Galatians 5 where we are told to walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Paul said in chapter 5, verse 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When we are dealing with sin in our own lives or in the life of a brother or sister, we deal from a place of victory. We deal from a position of power because we and our brothers and sisters are empowered and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So you are not fighting a losing battle. And if you present this to your sinning brother that you are trying to restore as them fighting a losing battle, they will not be properly restored. Now, surely this does not mean that we are perfect. Surely this does not mean that we expect perfection out of a brother or sister. But those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old things have passed away. The new things have come. You are raised to newness of life in Christ so you can be holy just as the God who called you is holy. So as followers of Christ, we ought to hold one another to a biblical standard, to the standard that you do not fight and face sin with a defeatist type of attitude, but you fight and face sin as a conqueror because Christ conquered sin on your behalf. He gives you his spirit so you can walk in newness of life. To hold one another to a biblical standard of personal holiness 
you must begin by holding yourself to a biblical standard of personal holiness. So Paul says, if anyone is caught in a trespass, if anyone is caught in any trespass. Now the next word to kind of zone in on here is the word caught. If anyone is caught in a trespass, this this term is important because it kind of separates this passage from what you might see in Matthew 18 or in 1 Timothy chapter 5 in dealing with elders, and that this is really not a church discipline type of situation. The term caught speaks of one who is um, falling into temptation. It really doesn't have in mind the one who is a willful and unrepentant sinner. It has in mind one who has been caught up in, in a trespass, who has been attacked with temptation and has fallen just temporarily into that sin and to that temptation. This, quite frankly and quite clearly, is a fellow saint who is walking with the Lord. It's a completely different thing to deal with one who is hardened in their sin and unwilling to repent. MacArthur picks up on this. He said the Greek word here allows for the idea of even the person being caught in the trespass itself. So it's just this idea that they're caught and entangled and they want to find their way out. This is not a hardened sinner, but a broken follower of Christ. The New King James even translates this word as being overtaken. If anyone is overtaken in any trespass, because that's really the, that's a good translation of this term. The thrust here is somebody who is caught up and who will do anything. They want to be restored. They will turn and flee from that sin because they want to continue walking with the Lord. Paul made a similar distinction to this to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, he wrote to that church, We urge you, brethren, to admonish the unruly, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, and to be patient with everyone. So he firstly says, admonish the unruly. Admonish those who are as a soldier who are walking out of step with their commander. That's not what he has in mind here in Galatians chapter 6. This is that idea of encouraging the discouraged, helping the weak, and being patient indeed with them all. Matthew Henry wrote about this. It's one thing to commit a sin by deliberation and with a full resolution to sin. Henry continued, though, that it's another thing altogether to be overtaken in a fault. And the latter is the case here, suppose, and here, and the apostle shows that great tenderness should be used. That's that tie into 1 Thessalonians 5.14, that great tenderness should be used when someone is caught up and overtaken and overwhelmed by temptation. So Paul says, if a brother or sister is caught up, entrapped, ensnared in any type of trespass, he says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. You who are spiritual. So we ask the question, who are the spiritual? What does it mean to be spiritual? Those are not throwaway words. I don't think Paul intends for us just to look at that and say, oh, well, 
we're all spiritual because we all have the Spirit of God in us. No, he's got something specific in mind to write that. What does he have in mind? Consider Galatians chapter 5. We are to walk by the Spirit so we do not carry out the desires of the flesh. The deeds of the flesh are evident for those who are in the flesh. Likewise, the fruit of the Spirit will be evident by those who are walking in the Spirit. Those who are spiritual, as Paul says in Galatians 6.1, will display the fruit of the Spirit. He ended Galatians chapter 5 by saying, Let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. The one who is spiritual is not boastful. The one who is spiritual, who is in this position to restore a sinning brother, does not a challenger, does not try to bring somebody out to a fight or an argument or disagreement. The one who is spiritual is not full of a heart of envy, but rather he is filled with the Spirit. He, he thinks spiritually about things. He spiritually appraises situations. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. He said, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, because you are still fleshly. You are full of strife and jealousy. You are as though babes in Christ who cannot, who cannot chew up and, and swallow and take the nutrients from the meat of the word. So you got milk. You got what a baby would get because you have not grown up in Christ. And he says very specifically there that they are considered infants in Christ because of strife and jealousy that is among them. So what are the signs of one who is spiritual? Again, as I said a moment ago, they spiritually appraise things. They think and they act spiritually. They walk according to God's word. It's not enough just to have a spiritual mindset to think spiritually about things, but you must actually commune with the Spirit of God. You must walk in step with the Holy Spirit of God and be walking in personal holiness. Again, that doesn't mean that you will be perfect, but it means that you are daily dying to yourself in your sin and walking with Christ. That is the one who is spiritual. The confrontation of sin and the resulting restoration with a fellow saint, though it will be a regular occurrence if we are walking closely together as we should, it's not something to be undertaken lightly. It's not something to be undertaken too quickly. It's something where you must be prepared you do a disservice to your fellow saint if you yourself are not prepared when you come to confront that sin. So now with that, we've kind of set up the idea of the charge of restoration, and now we actually need to look at that charge. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Restore this fallen and caught and entrapped brother. Restore them to right standing with the Lord. Now this word restore, it speaks of completing something. It speaks of 
perfecting something. It was even used of the disciples mending and repairing their fishing nets. It's this fixing that which is broken, rebuilding that which has been broken down. It is the idea of fitting and equipping something or someone to their right and proper function and purchase, purpose. That's what it means to restore, to, to fit and equip someone to serve the Lord. And this is a work of the Lord. Scripture makes that very clear. Hebrews chapter 13 makes it clear that this is a work that the Lord accomplishes. Hebrews 13 verse 20 through verse 21, it says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. Now this God of peace equips you or restores you, perfects you, in every good thing to do his will. God does this. God equips you. God restores you. God completes you. Peter would say it this way in 1 Peter chapter 5. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect. Same word there. He will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So this is a work that only God can accomplish. So when we're called to restore a brother or sister, what is the Lord commanding? He's commanding that you be the instrument that he uses to complete the work of sanctification in a saint that he himself accomplishes. He calls you to allow him to use you to accomplish the work of sanctification. In that step, in that process, in that opportunity. This is the Lord's work. It must be done the Lord's way. It must be done as He instructs, and it must be done for His glory. So, the work of restoration is the work of fitting or equipping a fellow saint to rightly serve the Lord. It is leading them in sanctification so that they might be used of God. That is what it means to restore someone. It means to put them in a position to help them return to or grow into a position where they can serve the Lord and the Lord's church and the Lord's purposes. So our calling, since this is the Lord's work, is that we must do this in accordance with God's word. We address sin as prescribed in and according to Scripture. We are not free to write our own rules. We are not free to choose how to address sin, and we are not free to choose what sin to address. We are called to restore any brother who is caught in any trespass. You do not choose. If you see a fellow saint caught up in a sin, you who are walking with the Lord, you who are spiritual, are called to go to that brother to show them that sin and to restore them, to fit them to serve the Lord. And this sounds like a weighty calling, a, a difficult task, and surely it is. God's glory is at stake in the way that we interact with and live with and love one another. 
But in God's grace, he gives us specific steps to follow throughout the rest of this text. He, he shows us the spirit that we must have in us as we strive to restore a, a fallen brother or sister. And he shows us how we must constantly be examining our own heart. So let's move then to the second point and look at the spirit of restoration. The spirit of restoration. We're, we're still in verse 1 here. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So when we talk about the spirit of restoration, we are pointedly looking at the heart motivation and the heart condition of the one restoring a brother or sister. Paul begins very clearly by saying that you restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. A spirit of gentleness. We talked about this in the fruit of the spirit. We understand that it is a challenging idea for us to grasp because it is counter to our culture and it really is counter to even our language. Paul sets up a contrast in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 21. He asked the Corinthians, shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, we know that the rod is to be used for correction, surely, but, but I think we can understand Paul is talking about there, should I come to you with this rod of iron rule or should I come to you gently? Should I bring the word to bear on your life with gentleness and correct you and then the Holy Spirit will properly lead you down the path of eternal life? Gentleness can often be translated as the term meekness. And again, we, we saw when we studied this in chapter 5 that the term just doesn't translate to the English language well. It doesn't translate even to our culture well. And we referenced um, Vine's dictionary. He, he has a real good description, definition of this term, and I want to read it again for you. Vine writes that the meekness manifested by the Lord and commended to the believer is the fruit of power. The common assumption is that when a man is meek, it is because he cannot help himself. But Jesus was meek because he had the infinite resources of God. It is power under control, you could say. Vine concluded, meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. Gentleness is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. Gentleness is a disposition of the heart. Gentleness is not a softly spoken word. Now, gentleness can often show itself in a softly spoken word, but just because someone has a, a, a meek or gentle tone does not mean that their heart is aligned with what Scripture defines as gentleness. Meekness, again, is the opposite of self-assertiveness. So to be meek is, means that you are asserting something other than yourself. What are you asserting then? You're asserting the truth of God's Word. And when we assert Scripture Sometimes it's not going to be with this gentle tone that so many want to hold up as gentleness. 
Do you think Jesus had a gentle tone when he was in the temple and overturned the tables? Surely not. Gentleness is asserting the truth when you're not asserting yourself. So when you strive to restore a brother or a sister, ask yourself this pointed question. Is my motivation and my action to assert the scripture with great patience or to assert my own opinion, my own agenda, my own hopes, my own desires with great stubbornness? Are you truly gentle or are you outwardly gentle and inwardly full of yourself and full of pride and arrogance? Is your focus to build up your fellow saint to fit and equip them to serve the Lord, or is it to further your agenda? Friends, we assert the scripture with humility. We assert God's word because it is the only and the true authority. So Paul says, restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So obviously Paul's not talking. He just told you, don't be full of yourself. He's not talking about being full and consumed with yourself, but he's talking about being self-watchful, being self-aware, knowing that as soon as you open that door to go confront sin in another, to restore a sinning saint, that Satan is going to attack you at that very moment. And sometimes in those very same ways, those very things that you go to confront Oftentimes, Satan will tempt you in that. But regardless, we know that you must keep watch on your own heart and your own soul because Satan is the great deceiver. And while your attention is on building up a brother, he is suddenly going to come to try and cut out your legs from under you, lead you into temptation, and cause you to sin. So we must look to ourselves. We must understand the reality that without the Spirit's power at work in us, we would be in the same position as this fallen saint. Without the Spirit's protection, the Spirit's work of sanctification in our own life, we could very well be experiencing the same sins. So knowing this propensity to sin, Paul instructs kind of in two ways here. He he gives this call to be humble toward that fellow saint. As we look to ourselves, we understand our propensity to sin, and that should give us a greater gentleness, a greater humility toward the one who has fallen into sin. It should give us the reminder that only the Lord can sanctify. But there's also this idea that when we confront sin, we must markedly guard ourselves. We must not get so caught up in the confronting of another saint that we lose sight that we are still a sinner saved by God's grace and needing to be kept and guarded and protected. So as you seek to restore, you must continue to pursue your own holiness. Simply put, we must be humble. You must think little of yourself. You must not think often of yourself except for to guard yourself against temptation. You must strive to build up your fellow saints. Moving to verse 2, we'll only kind of skim the surface here. This is a concept that I think we've kind of seen a lot over the last couple of years, but we still want to 
consider what Paul says here. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Now, there are similar terms in verse 2 and verse 5, burden and load. But they're used very differently. They, and they are different words and they're used in a different context with a different meaning. When we're called to bear one another's burdens, Paul is saying, carry the heavy load of your fellow saint. Come alongside them, pick them up, walk with them, and carry their load with them. In Romans 15:1, he said, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. If you have spiritual strength, find one who is spiritually weak and carry their weaknesses. Bind up their infirmities. Come alongside them and hold their arm and carry them and direct them down the path to righteousness and eternal life. Do not just please yourself. Bear with weaknesses. MacArthur offers um, real simple and real practical advice here. It's a longer quote, but I want to read it because it's just so helpful. He said that the spiritual believer who truly loves his brother and sincerely wants to restore him to a walk by the Spirit will continue to spend time with him and make himself available for counsel and encouragement. If you truly love your fellow saint, you will continue and continue and continue to make time to encourage and instruct that weaker brother. But MacArthur continued. He said, Prayer is the most powerful weapon believers have in conquering sin and opposing Satan. Prayer is our most powerful weapon. Asking the Lord's help is our most powerful weapon. MacArthur said, nothing helps a brother carry his burdens as much as prayer for him and with him. You have a brother or a sister come and confess sin to you, don't just say, well, you're going to have to buckle down and do better next time. Stop right then and there and pray with them. Pray for the Lord's deliverance from that sin, but don't let that be the last time you pray with or for that fellow saint. Prayer is how we Beg the Lord's help and grace when we are fighting and opposing sin and Satan. If you've ever spent time dealing with people, you understand that people that need help often need a lot of help. And that's not a bad thing. We, we want to meet with people where they are. Sanctification does not happen overnight. It does not happen in an instant. So if you find a fellow saint who, who is weak spiritually, who needs to be built up, you need to go ahead and plan and prepare and order your life to come alongside that person day after day after day after week after week after week after month after month after month. We should be exhausting ourselves and our resources, our time, our energy, even our finances to ensure that we are able to rightly walk alongside of our fellow saints that we were able to you know clark talked about spiritual gifts this morning and how some, how we all have different gifts well if we're not careful i think as we saw in that text this morning 
those who have a lesser gift can sometimes be left behind. They, they just are, they're over here in the corner. They serve faithfully and tirelessly, and, and we just kind of leave them over there. The same thing can happen with a weak saint if we're not careful. Nobody will go and build them up and, and drag them along with us as we walk toward Christ. So bear with the weaknesses of your fellow saints. Bear their burdens. And Paul says, as you do that, you fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Um, John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, you also love one another. When you're inclined toward impatience with a sinning saint, one who struggles and battles with sin, think often about how patient Christ has been with you. Think about the price that he paid for your redemption at the cross and the fact that even knowing that price, you still sin and he still forgives. We have no reason to ever be impatient with a fellow saint. We, we should be patient and loving and gentle and humble. We ought to love others with the same sacrifice and the same view towards sanctification that Christ loves us. And we cannot bear another's burden of sin. Each one, as we see in verse 5, will bear his own load. We cannot bear their burden of sin. But as they are bearing that weight, we can come alongside them, bind up their wounds, encourage, exhort, instruct, and help. Again, we should give of everything we have, all of our time, all of our energy, to come alongside our fellow saints because we glorify the Lord in doing that. We fulfill the command of Christ. So that's the charge of restoration, the spirit of restoration, and we want to look just briefly now at the self-examination of restoration. The self-examination of restoration. Look at verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. Now, so in verses 3 and 4 here, we have a common idea in the New Testament that we must not think too highly of ourselves. We must rightly appraise who we are and where we stand before the Lord. Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 1.26 that their proud confidence, that their boast should abound in Christ. Your proud confidence, your boast should only abound in Christ. If you have a boast in yourself, it is a boast in falsehood because there is nothing praiseworthy or good in us. Nothing but that which the Lord has worked in us, for which then he deserves the honor and glory and praise. Examine your own work. See how sinful you were, how sinful you still are, and then realize that you are counted righteous in Christ and make Christ your boast. 
when you examine yourself and you see where you stand, then you will only boast in Christ, and then you are in a good position to restore a fallen brother or sister. Now, in regard to restoring, we get this clear instruction that we must examine ourselves, that we must look to our own lives, that we must look to our own sin, that we must be on guard and consider ourselves with humility. We understand that we must not be deceived into thinking that we are something or someone that we are not. That is what the self-examination should lead us to, is to understanding that while you may think that you've got it all together, before you go and confront somebody, look to be sure that you're not something or someone that you don't realize. Because if you go with that log sticking out of your eye to inspect and to remove the speck from a brother or sister's eye, Christ says that you're a hypocrite. You're, you're a fool. I saw on um, uh, somewhere online last night one of those cartoon pictures. It may have been from Reftoons of of that exact situation. This guy has a two-by-four sticking out of his own eye, and he's pointing at, a, at another person's eye to get the speck out. And that's really the idea that, that Jesus had in mind. And that's the idea that we must understand, that we must examine ourselves. We must see to it that we are not walking in the very sin that we go to confront, because how hypocritical is that? How will it help someone when we have the plank sticking out of our own eye and are trying to take the speck out of their eye. Why would the Lord bless you in those efforts? He may use that to restore that sinner, but he's not using it to, to build you up or to sanctify you. We should be like Paul in Galatians six fourteen, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, Lord willing. He said, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That must be our hearts when we go to restore a brother or sister, that we boast only in the Lord and that the world is crucified to us and our lives are crucified to the desires of the world. Now, there's that final warning in verse 5. It, it, I think it really is a warning. In verse 5, Paul says, For each one will bear his own load. Romans 10, or 14, verse 10, and verse 12, Paul says, That you, why do you judge your brother? Or you, again, why do you re regard your brother with contempt? For we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. He's writing to saints here, and he says, We all, as Clark talked about again this morning, we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. And so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will answer for our lives, for our faithfulness and our obedience. We will stand and claim only Christ's blood and Christ's righteousness for our forgiveness and our righteousness, but then the Lord will have us account for how we lived our lives. You will, as Paul says, bear your own load. You will bear the responsibility of how you lived, how you used your spiritual gifts, how you used all the blessings that the Lord had given you. You will bear that load. 
So what does that mean for us? I think it means that for every consideration we give to restoring a brother or sister in sin, we ought to give ten considerations to our own sin. For, for every time you look and think, I, need to, I probably need to go address that with so-and-so, you need to ten times be thinking about, yeah, but what about this sin? Have I addressed this own sin in my life? I think it was Robert Murray McShane, the, the old preacher who gave his life early in life to, to serve the Lord, that he said, for every one look that you take at your own self and every look that you look to yourself and see your sin, you ought to take ten looks to Christ. So now if we do the math there, if we want to extrapolate that for every time you consider a brother or sister's sin, you ought to take a hundred looks at Christ. Don't get so caught up in the sins of yourself or of others that your gaze is taken off of the glory and the goodness and the kindness of your Savior. We are going to sin, and there is no excuse there, there is never an excuse for sin for those who know Christ. But we are going to sin. It's going to happen. We are not yet perfect. But as we do that, and as we are crushed, as we bear that load, as we are crushed under the weight of the sin, dear friends, may we look to Christ. As you see a brother or sister being crushed under the weight of their sin, Go call them to look toward Christ. Restore them. Mend them. Repair them. Fit them for service to the Lord. We must do this, as the Scripture tells us, with a spirit of gentleness. We must do it with a humble spirit that is driven by a love for the Lord and a love for our fellow saints. We must examine ourselves. We must remove the log from our own eye before we address the speck in another's eye. We must consider the grace and the kindness of the Lord towards you. You know, before you ever confront a brother or sister, think about how patient and how kind and how forgiving the Lord has been towards you. That will be the greatest asset you can have and rightly preparing and orienting your heart to go and restore another to consider how Christ has restored you. In all things, strive to be faithful to the Lord. Strive to be obedient, for you will bear your own load. You will not answer for a brother or a sister's sin. You will answer for your own sin, for your own lack of faithfulness, your own lack of exercising your gifts that the Lord has given you. Bear the burdens of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Be patient with them in sin. Rejoice with them in their victories. And be constant with them and for them in prayer. May we walk together. That is the purpose of the Lord's church, that we walk together and strive and labor together to glorify Christ. We strive together to make much of the name of Jesus. This is Christ-honoring restoration when you do it with this spirit, when you carry it out 
in this way. And when we do that, the Lord will bless those efforts. You may not see restoration every single time. You may not see it as quickly as you desire to see it. But when we are obedient to God's word, the Lord blesses that obedience. So may we strive to walk together. May we strive to honor the Lord in how we love one another. I hope and pray that in the coming year we, we will grow in our relationships, that we will grow in, in how much we want to spend time together. You know, it's a, uh, it's a good and helpful break that we take um, around Christmas. So we, we want to thank and honor our teachers and our nursery workers and all the people that, that serve so tirelessly. We want to give an opportunity to kind of slow down a little bit, and that's good, and, and it's good to honor those who deserve honor. But friends, we should be so excited to be back to this regular schedule now, right? To to be here Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night, be here spending time together and having more opportunities to invest in one another. But that should not be our only investment. That should not be the only time that we talk, that we communicate, that we talk about even spiritual things with one another. So in this coming year, this is a challenge to myself as much, maybe more so than it is to many of you, but may we discipline our lives to spend more time together, to, to fellowship more, to walk alongside of one another, because it's that relationship that gives teeth to this act of restoration. If it's somebody that you see on Sunday morning and you don't talk to them again until next Sunday morning, there's just something missing when they come to confront sin. Probably they can't come and confront sin because you're not going to see it. So may we strive to honor the Lord, to walk alongside one another as we seek and strive and run the race that is set before us as we run the race toward our heavenly home. May the Lord be glorified in us. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your word today. We pray that you would cause it to dwell in us, that you would cause it to bear fruit in our lives. Lord, would you convict us of sin? We know that we are all on a journey of sanctification. We are all on a journey of being made more like Christ. So would you help us by your word, through the power of your spirit, to seek more and more after Christ, to hate our sin, to love our Savior. Lord, give us humble and gentle